0: Um, but shit had uh, hit the fan the year before. Sorry, are we allowed to swear? You fucking swear. <laughs> fuck, 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 <laughs> shit, okay, shit, okay, shit. Okay, good, swear. Good, good, good. Swear. <laughs> oh my god. Swear fucking, it. Swear it out, man. Fucking
1: awesome. <laughs> um, fucking awesome. I'm Dr. Ethel Tungohan, an associate professor of politics at York University. Welcome to Academic Anties. On this podcast, we talk a lot about toxic work environments and strategies of survival, but there are moments when you just have to leave. And that is what today's episode is about. It is sometimes hard to figure out when to stay or when to go. A lot of us feel trapped. A lot of us are in situations where we know that we're being bullied, that we're being set up to fail, that we're not valued. But even as we know this viscerally, we second guess ourselves. If it's bad here, how could I guarantee that it won't be worse somewhere else, we ask? We end up gaslighting ourselves. Today, our guests tell us how and why they made the decision to leave and the importance of ultimately prioritizing and loving ourselves. With us today are Dr. Joe Davis McElegant, that's Auntie Joe for you, and Dr. Rita Shaw, that is Rita Massey. Auntie Chu and Rita Massey, thanks for joining us and please introduce yourselves.
2: Sure. Um, I'm in Denton, Texas at the University of North Texas and I am an assistant professor of Black Literary
1: and Cultural Studies. Awesome.
0: Um, hi, I'm Rita Shaw. I'm an associate professor of criminology at Eastern Michigan University. Auntie Chu and Rita Massey, you guys are friends. How did you guys know each other? Um, it happened because I screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, we were in a Facebook group years ago and I was trying to ask a question very inarticulately and just bombed. Um, and Joe was just very patient with me and I think I was the presumptuous one. I was like, Joe, I really like you. Could I be Facebook friends with you? (laughs) And it, and it sort of just started from there and yeah.
2: We were also, as I recall, like in a similar place. Mm -hmm. like deeply unhappy with our institutions and so bonding over
1: our mutual misery and desire to leave. Both of you at that point were in a similar situation. Can you talk a little bit about that time, both of you, Uh, just to kind of figure out where you were then and where you are now?
2: I was at the University of Louisiana, Lafayette, um, and I was on the tenure track and I was the only Black women mm. in the department mm. um, on the tenure track. And I was happy with where I was. I loved um, my, the town where I lived. My partner and I had moved to this tiny rural majority Black and Creole town. Our little, our son's elementary school was right next door. Mm. He had besties. I had friends. Mm. like, um, But my job, the conditions of my employment were... I think making me sick. I think that's what I bonded with you over, Rita, Mm -hmm. was the physical and psychic toll that my job was taking on me.
1: Mm. Rita Massey, when we spoke before this episode, you told me about how you were being bullied.
0: When did the bullying start? Like the bullying started in full force my third year. Um... And like, it, it sort of started to come out a little bit in my third year review, right? So my de- what my department chair at the time told me, she was like, I was a little surprised by some of the things that, that were said. So I went back and looked at your prior ones. And from what it sounded like, it sounded like my prior department chair was basically trying to protect me from some of the nonsense. Mm, mm-hmm. um, but what this department chair said is that it was coming up so much more and with so much more frustration that she felt like she couldn't keep it quiet anymore. So who was bullying you? Uh, one of my department members, yeah, who's well known in the field, um, who has a position of prominence in the field, um, yeah, I'll let people figure it out if they want to figure it out, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, and, and so, like, one of the things that came, so, and I actually don't think this was about me, but one of the things that came out was there was frustration that my classes weren't filling, Except, Ugh, except, I hate that. except oh. here's the problem. The criminal, the criminal justice major at the time required only two classes that I taught. Mm. So even though in my first four years, I had created 10 new classes, mm. they had no reason to take them because the major didn't even have room for electives. Oh
1: my God.
0: So there was literally no reason for people to take my classes. Yeah. Right. But it, but it's my fault that the numbers are low. And so, um, One of the things that they had said in response is, well, maybe she could teach the intro sociology course. But instead of coming to me and saying, here's the situation, would you be willing to help us out? In which case, I probably would have said yes. Mm. They put it in their annual review and said, well, she needs to teach this class. And they also put, and I actually don't think it was both of them, I think it was just my bully put um, something along the lines of, in order to prep, perhaps you should sit in on the class Ugh. one semester. What? Correct. Because apparently, since I didn't have a sociology degree, I'm not capable of teaching Mark Sterkheim and Weber. Oh, my God. Uh, You're a colleague. <laughs> you are not a TA, yes. right? What? Precisely. Precisely. And so, again, if they had just come to me and said... Would you be willing to teach this? How comfortable are you teaching this? I'm happy to walk you through what I do in the class, if that would help you prep it. Like, if that if the conversation had been colleague to colleague, mm. this would have been very different. Mm. But the way it came out, I put my foot down, I said no. And that I think is when shit hit the fan and like everything just started to fall apart. Like they they were bullying my students to get to me. Um Whoa, 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 whoa. Like they,
1: what do you mean? They were yeah. they were getting your students? To do what?
0: So, so, so I had so we did honors in the discipline, mm. right? The first semester they would defend their proposal, then the second semester they would complete their thesis and then defend the thesis, yep. right? So it was sort of like a mini master's or PhD thing. Um, what we started to do was around like week three or four of the semester had them do like a mini presentation just to like make sure we didn't see any major red flags ahead of time, right? So in that mini presentation, the two sociology students just said that they were going to do a survey, right? No discussion of what the variables were, what... Yeah. <laughs> no, nothing. They was just, we're going to do a survey. Like, cool. So my student gets up there and says that she's going to do a visual analysis of, I don't remember anymore but a visual analysis um, of whatever the images she, she wasn't, she had, her research questions were about. And they started asking for more details. And I, I just sat back. Cause I'm like, I know, you know, the answers and I am not a handholder mentor. Mm-hmm. I like to give them a chance to try to answer. And after a few minutes, she started crying. <gasps> and at that point I was like, I can't even, I can't even jump in at this point because if I jump in, that I'm attacking my colleagues and not defending her when what I, cause all I really wanted to say was like, y'all, you didn't ask these questions of the other two. Yeah. So can we just drop it? Yeah. And and I actually told her at one point, I sat her down. I was like, look, I need you to understand this is not about you. This is about me. Mm, mm-hmm. And it's, it's not fair to you, but I need you to understand that. Cause I, I, I don't want you to keep taking this up personally. Cause it's really not about you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then she started crying even more cause she felt bad for me. Oh. And I'm like, no, like, no oh jeez. um like it's just yeah and and I had other students who like my last year I asked them flat out I was like I don't like I don't understand why I've never been able to get get students to take my classes and one of them was like you want to know the truth I was like what do you mean and she said that she found out that apparently one of my colleagues the bully was telling students not to take classes what with me. supposedly I don't know if it's true But that's what she had heard. But why would the student make it up, right? Like, oh my gosh.
1: I don't, right. I don't have a reason to believe that the student would make it up either. Oh my gosh, Rita Massey. This is like awful. I am (laughs) so, oh my goodness. So I guess another thing I wanted to ask both of you, like hearing a little bit about these journeys is when did you figure out that you needed to just like leave?
2: I had gradually over the time that I was there, figured out ways to do what I needed to do with my Mm. students. Um, I was still struggling for my colleagues to assign basic courses to me. Like, can I please have a section of black mm-hmm. studies to teach? Um, they wouldn't assign it to me. And I still struggle with that. Um, I, over the course of the nine years that I was there, directed or served on 45 PhD
1: and MA committees. Oh, 45.
2: I was on every committee known to man, name a committee. I was on it. Um, The dean of the graduate school, who's a really wonderful person, but she asked me to help her and the diversity had developed like a safe place for marginalized grad students. And that became like really important to me, but it was uncompensated labor. (sighs) And at the time, I didn't even have the language to ask, Like, can I get a course release? Can I get more money? Also, I found out because their salaries are public record that there was only one person getting paid less than me in the entire what? system. Yeah. Um, in spite of like this incredible, almost insane output that I was doing. So one of my students, you know, several of my students said, and this is also on top of, just have to brag, like five, I think, black women, that studied with me there are now professors at Spelman University of North Carolina, Wilmington, Tulane. That's phenomenal. Um, That's great. So I feel like I'm doing the necessary work for my students. They're getting employed. Their dissertations are getting published. Um, they're, you know, it should be fine. So I, I wait until I get tenure. I'm the chair of the graduate mm. faculty, right? Obviously I have to have to do more service. And so I asked them to please consider making Africana studies an, an actual yes. area so that my students don't have to ask permission to take it for their yeah. comps. Like, have I not proven yeah. to you? Oh, another problem is that these courses that my students needed, like you Rita, I didn't, they weren't part of the curriculum. They weren't a requirement. So I was doing multiple unpaid independent studies. So out of a duty to my students, I was also doing so much uncompensated labor service. And then, I mean, just, Oh, I offered a 3-3 three, three load. I was getting paid so little I had to teach in the summer, what? in the winter. So one year I taught um, a three-one-four-three. Three. Oh I taught in every session. Oh,
1: my God.
2: Every session. <laughs> oh, my God. Right? So I, wow. I feel like I – and I was also publishing at this time. Like, I edited a collection, and I published, like, I don't know nine or ten articles. Of course you did. So I was being very,
1: <laughs> yeah. very
2: fucking productive. Perfect angel. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. I, yeah.
1: Um, a star. Thank you. Oh, so my God. Asked,
2: thank you. So then I asked them at the faculty meeting, can you please make Africana studies a standard area? Here's my evidence. And they said they didn't like the name. They thought it should be African-American. Um, they argued about it in front of me they said actually one person said they didn't know if this was something they wanted to invest in going forward and so if we make it a standard area that's a signal that we have to do something with it and then they made me wait for this is the last meeting of the winter they made me wait over winter break so they could quote unquote think about it And so that's when I like, came home and I told my partner, like, I think it's time for me to leave because if after all of this work, all of this effort in diversity work, in building up Black studies, if the history of Ernest Gaines being here doesn't mean anything, if I'm ineffective, I'm the first Black woman to get tenure in this department, um, in the history of the institution, I was the oh, first my goodness. and they still never, it never clicked, so I went home, and then I immediately went on the market.
1: So it was just kind of that moment that kind of made you go.
2: Yeah, I feel like it broke me, because I was really not feeling well. Mm. I was diagnosed with OCD when I was in grad mm-hmm. school, and I was really struggling to get, like, quality psychiatric care. at Louisiana. Everything's kind of dip- more difficult there. there. You know, I was living in a rural place. There weren't doctors you know and I certainly I I wasn't I wasn't feeling like myself so I realized like if I keep working here I wasn't sure if I would ever be able to be as mentally healthy Mm. as I believe I could be I didn't believe that it was ever going to get any better Mm -hmm. and I was just I was concerned that I would die young I mean it's a very weird feeling but I was like I I feel like I'm not going to make it here um if I can and especially not with this bullshit
1: So I guess, you know, both of you are now kind of in new jobs. Um, oh, my gosh. I feel like I have to put a big E warning for this episode. But if we <laughs> use the higher piece of shit, <laughs> as like, you know, first job, ugh, like you're just swimming, <laughs> swimming in it. Yeah. But now yeah. it's like little shits. I don't know. Like, like it's hand. Ha- you can handle it. Like, I mean, what's the second job like? Is it is it it's it sounds like it's better, right?
0: It. It's definitely better, and I and I do want to say, I mean, to Joe's point, like part of what made leaving the last place so hard is I I am the same way. I loved my students mm. there. Um, I think once I figured out how to make the information click with them, things did get better. And like I was involved with the queer community on campus for the first time ever, but like I was starting to mentor some of them, and like so. Like, and they were very generous about helping me better understand their issues so I could be better advocates for them. Mm. Um, you know, like, I, I still remember one of my favorite students was actually a poli-sci student who took four classes with me, oh. even though he hated the content, but he said that he liked me and he liked the challenge that I gave him. Oh. And I was like, this is this is why I do what I yes. do, right? Like, like, so, yeah, I mean, same with Joe. Like, I... I, and I think about those students a lot and I really do, I loved that part of it um, and I loved a, I had really, I have good friends and I'm still good friends with that are colleagues outside of that department um, but yeah, I mean I guess I would say like in terms of hierarchy of shit, like I would say in the last one I was literally drowning under the shit <laughs> <laughs> and this place I can at least keep my head above the shit <laughs> and I also feel like I have I have a hazmat suit
3: this time, also, so my head is above the shit and I'm, like, protected. Because I feel like I, like, I know what my boundaries are now. When I first yeah, started same. a decade ago, I was like, I, you know, there was shit I would put up with, mm. tolerate, that now I'm just, there's no way that I'm gonna do this with you. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So, I feel more walking into this position, like, I know what is required of me, and I know what I'm doing. Um, And so, I I feel like that makes a huge difference for me.
0: Mm. Some of the differences for me are, like... I I will say the one good thing that I take away from my last position is I have such a better understanding of whiteness... Mm. ...than Mm -hmm. I would have otherwise, right? Like, I... I've been very lucky most of my life that I have not had a, I mean, not to say that I haven't dealt with, like, racism and sexism, but not at that level in a way that I know a lot of our other colleagues have. And so that place definitely, like, got me up to speed very quickly. And, and so now when I confront it, I'm like, oh, no, 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 we're not having this. Uh-huh. That's not happening. That's not to say that we don't have some people in the department who can be bullies. I mean, we're a big enough department that, like, statistically, I feel like mm. there's going to be, like, one or two people that are going to try to push people around, right? Like that, But that, I think that's true of any organization that has 20-ish people, right? You're just going to get personalities that are very strong like that.
1: A hundred percent.
0: But yeah, so... Yeah, so, like, it's it's the shit that I expected, which I think is part of why I'm able to keep my head above it, because I, I can almost predict what's going to happen and what the response is going to be, and so I know how to prepare and, like, what to do. Mm.
1: Absolutely. How about you, Auntie Joe? Like, you know, you're wearing a hazmat suit, you're a little bit more, it's not as <laughs> though you're a little bit more guarded and more about setting boundaries, but also having experienced what you did in your first institution, you have lessons that you've learned. Is that?
3: Yeah, that's absolutely true. Okay. Um, I think guarded is a good word. You know, I just, I know that in the private sector, you're not expected to be life friends with everybody that you work with. You're, it's a job. Um, and so wanting to, if I'm going to be in an English department, and it's a huge department, it's like 50, 50, Full time faculty and 100 grad students, and um, just it's massive. Then I need to make certain that they don't take too much of me. Like, I have to give of me to my students, to my research. Um, I have, you know, service that matters to me. Like, I'm um, at the advisory board for women's gender and sexuality studies. Yeah, I get for me, I just don't want to give them too much of myself. Mm. Um, I need to make sure that I have room left over for me. And, Mm. you know, I work out every day. I make sure that if I want to take time off to go on a field trip with my kid, I do it. Yes! Um, (laughs) Yes! Just, like, basic things. If I don't feel well, I don't, I don't force myself, um... It's all that you know, and I did give up tenure to come here because I have to write a monograph. Mm. Yeah, um, and even that felt like an exciting challenge because mm. I feel it doesn't feel like I don't feel panicked about it. I don't feel anxious about it. It's just something that I'm gonna sit down and do. It's like my job, um, and that feels completely different because before it was like my job was in my life in this complete and total way that I couldn't breathe or think, and even when I wanted time off, it was still in the back of my mind. Um, and here, when I'm done working or I don't want to deal with, with my job, I simply don't. And that's... Um, I think that comes from, like, the wisdom of that experience that I gained there. Um, I'm never... No matter who I ever work for again, I will never give them as much time and energy from my, my, myself ever again.
0: I just want to echo literally all of that. Um, And I would say to anyone who's listening, if you take anything away from this conversation, it's to figure out your boundaries early and set them. Because to to something that Joe said, this is just a job. It does not define us. It is not who we are. It is something that we do. And yeah, being an academic is an identity I have. But the job is a job. Mm. It is not my life. And... And I've, same as you, Joe. like, I think after this, I've been, I've been so much better about my boundaries. Like, people ask me to do things, and I actually say no now. Um, And and it's funny, because I actually went from a 3-3 to a 4-4 load, but I'm doing way more research now than I was before. Because, because, I mean, I'm not prepping a new class literally every semester. Like, I can just update what I've been doing. Like, there are things that are built in that actually allow me to do it. But, but I can also say, no, like if someone asks me to do something and I can legitimately say, I just don't have time right now. Like they're not going to think I'm evil incarnate. They're going to respect that boundary. They're not going to think that I don't care about our students. They're respecting that. I'm trying to be my best self for our students, right? Like I now have something in my syllabus about this is when I answer emails and this is when I don't. And you can send me an email I'm not answering it. I might see it. I'm not answering it. Like, bottom line. Um, like, but, but but I think also the other thing I, I hope people take away is that, like, we have to make our boundaries clear in ways that I don't think is the case outside of academia. Like, how? what do you like, mean? It sh- like, I should not have to tell students that I don't answer emails on the yeah. weekends. <laughs> right? Like, or, like... Or like I answer emails from the hours of eight to five, <laughs> right? Like I feel like in other in other <laughs> um, sectors, if you're working on a big project at the moment, maybe. But otherwise, like there's an expectation that your weekend is your weekend and your evening is your evening but I don't know about, I don't know about the two of you, but I would literally get emails that were sent to me at like two in the morning. And then I get another email at like six in the morning that are like, why didn't you answer my email? Listen. I'm like, cause, cause I was sleeping. No, <laughs> you're so right with So the private sector analogy or not
1: even the private sector, a non act cause you know, my partner works um, for the government, right? Like, you know, hey. any other industry, but academia at least establishes that there are boundaries that workers, <laughs> that protect workers. Yes. So like, yes. and you know, everything, everything both of you are seeing resonates so much. And I do want to circle back to something that was said earlier that I think we need to emphasize more, which is that, you know, both of you left tenured positions, right, to come to new institutions. And one of the things Auntie Jo said was, you know what? I was excited by that. And for me, Uh, I was like, really? Because then that's a lot more work. But like, can you, can you, I guess, starting with Auntie Jo, like you were excited By this challenge, rather than being intimidated by it, because it's such a huge thing to do. It is a
3: huge thing to do, but I also um, had never been in a position at my former job where I could ever actualize. To me, leaving that job and deciding, okay, I'm going to take a gamble... On myself and what I want for once, which is like, I want to spend the next, you know, so and like the pandemic has, you know, obviously fucked everything up. But, um, yes. mm. you know, that even that aside, as like as stressful as that experience has been, it's been nothing as bad as the previous nine years were. So, oh, 100%. Um,
1: oh my God. 100%. Yeah. Yes. You know what? I am feeling all the feels. Yet again, in this conversation, and I think a lot of listeners will feel this thing too, because a lot of people are afraid to leap, and I think that's true for a lot of BIPOC women. Because we've been kind yeah. of socialized into being grateful and making it work. Yep. I mean, you know. Yes. As <laughs> yeah, and
3: It's the yeah. gratitude. And, and then also being told that, you know, I would feel so much guilt because I'm the only one. Yes. And I have all yes. these students yes. and they need me. I can feel the need. And then the community is like, yeah. we love you. And, you know, like my, it just, you start, the, the more time you spend there, the more you can feel yourself integrated. So and, like leaving that felt felt sad in some ways but i need to do that for myself i deserve a chance to finish my book if i want
0: for for me it also wasn't just like feeling sad because i was the only and like abandoning feel like i, I kind of did feel like i was abandoning my students but like i also realized in hindsight i had internalized all the critiques like it, it was kind of becoming an abusive relationship yes. for me i was starting to truly internalize all the things of like I'm not gonna get another job because I'm not producing enough research. Aww. I'm not good enough. I'm like like I became very territorial about being the criminologist, even though I'm a firm believer that criminology is interdisciplinary. And so I seriously was like I was terrified that I was becoming an academic that wouldn't be able to make that kind of transition. Um It seems
1: as though And Yeah, it's like you've internalized the values that they're trying to impose yeah. on you when you're kind of Yes becoming like, you know, you're becoming entrenched in what they're trying to make you think yes. of yourself.
0: The the saving grace for me was pretty much anybody I talked to outside of my department was like, Rita, you're amazing. What you're doing is amazing. Like almost everybody outside of my department saw my worth, saw what I was trying to do, saw like the value of what I was trying to do with my research. And thankfully, all of them counteracted the, the negative, right? And like helped me realize that like and, and again my friends outside of the institution too, right? So like helped me see that no no, it's not me, it's them.
1: For listeners who are feeling really trapped and just feel like, you know what? Should I just suck it up because at the end of the day, things are okay, I guess. I don't know. Um, what advice would you give to people who are just trapped or feel that they want to leave but don't know if they should make the leave?
0: I, I think one advice I would give is just sit back and ask yourself, are you happy? Because if you're not happy, then nothing is worth it. Mm. It's it's not worth your mental health. It's not. I mean, I I gained twenty pounds at that job. Twenty pounds, right? I wasn't physically healthy. I wasn't mentally happy. Healthy. I was not happy. Mm. Mm-hmm. And you can deal with a lot if you're happy. So that's the first advice. The second advice I would give is it is never worth it. Just period it is never worth it mm. if you feel trapped if you feel like it's a nowhere job i i understand the fear because i have the exact same fears but that's why so i'm just i'm just one of those big picture planners so like i literally had three different plans so if you know like if you're if you're feeling scared then sit down and figure out what what would make you not scared mm. right what are the options That would make you feel okay about leaving. And then figure out how to make those options happen.
1: That's beautiful. Thank you. Auntie Cho, any advice to give for people who feel trapped?
3: One of the things that I think is under-discussed
1: is the problem
3: of shame. Mm. Um, She said it feels, you know shameful to for some reason to admit that it's not working out for you. Mm. You don't like it. Um, especially when you're surrounded by white people who are like, Hey, because I was born here, you know, I belong here. Um, so I think like confronting my anxiety about the shame I was afraid I was going to feel, or maybe would feel um, about leaving a position where I may not immediately walk into another tenured position. Um, I think that really doing some deep thinking about why we're encouraged to feel shame when we take care of ourselves, how that shame keeps us subordinate and keeps us sort of slogging through. Because in many instances, these departments are not invested in really doing right by the people of color they hire. They they simply need somebody to be to occupy yes. a functionary position, and they're perfectly happy to allow you to be a functionary. And if that's yeah. the situation that you're in, it's not ever going to get any better. And there's no shame in leaving that. In fact, it's powerful to leave that. So um, I have this poster that I bought. Um, it's an Audrey Lorde quote, and it's like right at my line of sight. And it says, when I dare to be powerful, to use my strength in the service of my vision, then it becomes less and less important whether I am afraid. And so I oh, meditate on beautiful. that all the time. I think that that's where a lot of the source of my strength has come from is from Black feminist thinkers who remind us that, you know, being silent won't save you, that being meek won't save you, um, that even your fear won't save you. Um, I also would say that for me, a major motivator was that I just didn't feel well. Mm. Um, And I think we're also really willing to feel sick, as just a sort of consequence of, like, what we may consider to be justifiable stress. Um, And I I don't agree. My own mental health and my physical health, like, my ability to be in my body. um, It's my body, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm not just a brain. I also have—my brain is in a body. I Also, another factor um, that I think is that I think we can become, like, really, like, used to our own— the conditions of our own despair. So yes. that they, they begin to feel like normal. Mm, you know, like mm-hmm. this has just been going on for so long. It's like, I don't even remember a time when I felt like yep. it wasn't
1: like this. Um, yep. And oh my so, God. I'm so, I'm feeling it. Oh my God. Yes. Sorry. Yes. We become like, so I, used I, no, to it no. Yes. And happiness is like a vague thing, but it's real. Thank you both so much. This has been honestly so wonderful and so cathartic and is making me think about pathways for my own career, right? So I truly appreciated both of you taking the time to talk to us. Uh, Rita Massey, Auntie Cho, are you on Twitter? (laughs) How can people kind of know more about you and your work and other things?
0: Sure. Um, thanks for having us, Ethel. This has been, this has been phenomenal. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and, and I hope it's been helpful to others. Um, you can find me on Twitter at the Rita PhD. So T H R I T A P H D, And then for the more fun side of me, I'm on Instagram. You can see my photography there um, for the non-academic side and that's the underscore Rita underscore photography
3: cool um yeah thank you so much this was great. I'm my handle for insta and um, Twitter are the same at JcdMC
1: There are many things that I learned from this conversation but the one thing that I hope people remember is that it is okay to leave. We cannot and we must not give all of ourselves to institutions, especially those that send signals to us every day that they do not want us. Rather than thinking about leaving as failure, think about leaving as an opportunity. Think about leaving as freedom. That's Academic Anties for this month. We've received so much great feedback from all of you about the show and could really use your help to get the word out to even more people. If you haven't already, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. And if you know someone who might like the show, let them know. If you want some anti wisdom, we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a message at academicantiescom ask or tweet us at at Academic Auntie, And your question may be featured on a future episode of Ask an Academic Anti. Today's episode of Academic Aunties was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tungohan and produced by myself and Wayne Chu. Tune in next time when we talk to more academic aunties. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.